It's a joy to be with you in this Christmas season, church. And if I don't get to personally greet you uh, between now and the holiday, Merry Christmas. Um, I love you very much. And uh, thank you for hanging with us as we preach through the book of Daniel in December. I had somebody ask me recently, are you actually going to go through Daniel 7 and 8 leading up to Christmas? And I said, you bet we're going to go through Daniel 7 and 8 leading up to Christmas. Because... In these chapters, as I will seek to argue this morning, we behold Jesus Christ. We behold Jesus Christ. He is the one that we celebrate on Christmas. Speaking of Christmas, one of my favorite associations with the holiday is lots of good food. Anybody with me on that? Lots of good food. Yeah, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of that. And, and I would argue that anything that is worth eating once, see how many of you agree with me on this, is worth eating twice. You tracking what I'm, what I'm saying there, right? So one, one bite isn't enough. And sometimes the very fact that you've tasted it once before makes the anticipation and enjoyment of repeated bites all the more satisfying, you know? So, so just imagine this, maybe if you had this experience, you finally make it to that restaurant you've been wanting to try for years, and maybe you show up and you already know what you're going to order. I've, I've done this, right? Before you even get there, and the food arrives, you dig in, and that first bite is everything you dreamed it would be. And so much more. And I'm taking a great risk right now, talking about food close to 11 a.m. <laughs> but you know, just think about a steak, you know? And you take that first bite, and your joy just begins to rise because you realize, I just get to have bite after bite after bite of that just keeps getting better. Friend, I would argue that, that rightly understood, that's what the word of God is like. Okay? These, these words that we heard read this morning, they, they have not been given to us to tickle our fancies or grow our heads. Okay? They've been given to us to satisfy our souls. Satisfy your soul. Not, not once, not twice, but over and over and over again. I don't think it's an accident that King David described the word of God with food. You know, he gets it. He gets it. What did he say in Psalm 119? How sweet are your words to my taste. How sweet. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. So, why are we taking two weeks to hear God's word to us in Daniel chapter 7? Well, because I think God wants us to chew on these words. Okay, he wants us to meditate on these words, to linger long on these words, because he wants you and me to be satisfied by these words. So when, when he speaks to us in his word, he's giving us Nothing less than lifelong nourishment for the soul. 
That's what he's doing. And to meditate on this chapter is to have, as it were, God take you by the hand, God take us by the hand, and fix our eyes on the future. That's what he's doing. And it's, it's not a utopic future. It's not an idyllic future. It's not a wouldn't it be great if that could someday happen future. It's a certain future. It's a guaranteed outcome. It's an end to world history that grabs our attention and it demands your allegiance. That's what God's doing here, okay? He is grabbing our attention. This is like a by the shirt collar moment. He's grabbing our attention. He's demanding our allegiance. So, so remember what I said last Sunday. I told you that I was gonna preach a two-part sermon with one main point, one big idea, okay? So if, if you're here this week, you weren't here last week, I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm going to give a quick review, but I encourage you to listen to this sermon from last Sunday, okay? But here's the big point of both sermons. I hope you remember this. In the end, Jesus wins. I heard it. It was coming out. In the end, Jesus wins. And if you're found in Christ, then you win too. That's the point. Didn't change over the last seven days. It was true last week, it's true this week, okay? In the end, Jesus wins, and if you're found in Christ, then you're going to win too. And there are at least four reasons in Daniel 7 why that's the case. Okay, so I shared two of them last Sunday. We're going to go through the second, or the third and fourth this morning, okay? And just to review, point one from last Sunday was this. Every kingdom in this world is subject to, to the sovereign authority of God. Okay, please notice that was not a statement about the future. That was a statement about the present. Right now, every ruler, every kingdom, every human heart, whether it wills to do what is good or evil, is presently subject to the authority of God. Right now. And we see that truth in the way Daniel describes these various beasts coming to power in the world. What what are these beasts? Well, they symbolize kings and kingdoms who defy the authority of God and oppress the people of God. So what does Daniel tell us about these beasts? Well, he told us last week that their dominion is given by God, it's limited by God, and will ultimately be judged by God. That's what it means to be under authority. Their dominion is given by God, it's limited by God, and they'll ultimately be judged by God. I love how Joyce Baldwin says this. Once convinced of the truth this chapter is proclaiming, the reader is in possession of the key to history. Isn't that amazing? The international scene is not, after all, out of hand, for it is in God's hand. It's not out of hand. Why? Because it's in God's hand. Okay? What does that mean, church? That means that your spiritual and physical enemies right now are not in charge. God's in charge. God's in charge, and for that reason, we trust him. We trust him. Every kingdom in this world is subject to the sovereign authority of God. The second point from last Sunday, every kingdom in this world is subject to the righteous judgment of God. 
subject to the sovereign authority, subject to the righteous judgment. We, we saw this truth mainly in Daniel's description of what happens to these four beasts, okay? The, the kings and kingdoms of this world, when the Ancient of Days takes his seat in verse 9, his court sits in judgment, books are opened, and, and what happens next is exactly what the Apostle Paul says is going to happen in Romans 2. Listen, God will render to each one according to his work. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Friend, on the day that Jesus comes back, there is going to be no dominion either in the physical territory of this earth or the spiritual territory of your heart that will be allowed to persist in rebellion against our creator king. No dominion. Everyone will be judged and all God's enemies will be destroyed, including every man or woman who in this life has refused to turn from living for their own pleasure to living for the pleasure of God. That's a word of warning. If you're not repenting of your sins, and that's a word of tremendous comfort if you're in Christ. Why do I say comfort? Because, as I said last week, it's not ultimately our job, please hear this, it's not ultimately our job to hold the oppressive kingdoms and people of this world to account. There's freedom in that. That's God's job. God is really good at doing God's job. (laughs) He's not going to let the guilty go unpunished. In the end, everyone will answer to the Lord. And for that reason, we trust him. Okay? Every kingdom in this world is subject to the righteous judgment of God, subject to the sovereign authority of God, subject to the righteous judgment of God. And now we're ready for point three. Okay, here we go. The triumph of God's kingdom is secured through the triumph of God's Son. The triumph of God's kingdom, how do we know this is all going this way, Matthew? You seem so excited. How do we know that? Well, the triumph of God's kingdom in the future is secured, past tense, through the triumph of God's Son. Okay, so so think about it this way, very, very practically. How can you sit here and know that everything I said in points one and two is true? You know, you should be asking yourself that. When you're listening to somebody speak on stage, particularly if they're really compelling and you just feel like, wow, I'm mesmerized, you ought to be thinking, hold on, how do I know that what they're saying is true? It better come from the word. Not just because they're a good talker. Well, we know that the first two points are true because the triumph of God's kingdom is secured through the triumph of his son. Look at verse 13. The reason I couldn't do this chapter in one week is because verses 13 and 14, church, are pretty much the most important verses in the entire book of Daniel. And I would argue perhaps even in the entire Old Testament. Okay? Look at verse 13. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Everything Daniel says about this figure is absolutely critical. 
Okay, so let's work through this. What's he say? First, he tells us that in this vision, he, Daniel, he saw this figure coming with the clouds of heaven. That is not a throwaway line. That's not Daniel's way of saying, you know, or what sort of telling these great stories, lions, and fiery furnace, but now we're going to get all weird and poetic. Oh man, better pull out a pastor or a commentator or something to help me. No, it's not a throwaway line, okay? When he says, he saw one coming with the clouds of heaven. He's saying something to us. What's he saying? Well, throughout the Bible, clouds are associated with sightings of God or manifestations of God. Okay, so think about it. Think about the pillar of cloud that protected the children of Israel from the armies of Egypt. Okay, or, or think about the smoke that filled the temple when God called the prophet Isaiah. Nahum chapter one says, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds, they're the dust of his feet. So to, so to come with the clouds or to come upon the clouds is, is what? Well, it's to travel the way God travels. Now, that, of course, that's imagery, that's poetry. It's like God has four clouds parked in his heavenly garage? No. It's a symbol. Remember the guidelines. It's a symbol, okay? But Psalm 104 helps us here. Verse 3, he makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. And the New Testament picks up on the same imagery to describe the second coming of Christ. Okay, so Matthew 24, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Revelation 1, behold, he, Jesus, is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. So what's the point? When Daniel says that he sees one who's coming with the clouds, he is saying in no uncertain terms that this one that I see is divine. He's divine. But he doesn't stop there. He tells us that this one coming with the clouds of heaven is what? Like a son of man. Like a son of man. What does that communicate? Well, church, that initially, that makes a sharp distinction between this figure and the four beasts preceding him. Okay, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that unlike the folks who were here before on the scene and had dominion who were beasts, this one's like a man. He's not like a beast. He's like a man. And that picks up on the language of Psalm 8, where David says, what is man? that you're mindful of him. And the son of man that you care for him, yet, yet you have made him a little lower. Who? The son of man. Then the heavenly beings and crowns him with glory and honor. You've given him, notice, dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. So the son of man in Psalm 8 is clearly, what? A human figure. Okay, verse 5 says that he's made or created, and verse 6 says that the Lord gave him dominion over the entire created world. Okay, so, so both descriptions, a human being who is created and a human being who is given dominion, what does that recall? Well, Genesis 1, where God creates Adam, the first man, and gives him what? Dominion. Adam, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion 
over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, now we know that Adam was essentially human because he was made in the image of, of his creator. By the way, that's what makes you, this is true for all of you, no exceptions, distinct from every other created thing. You bear the image of God. Bear the image of God, whether you realize it or not. But, but we know that Adam, was, Adam wasn't just essentially human, bearing God's image. He was also representatively human. Don't lose me because that word had multiple syllables, okay? Let's, let's think carefully through this because Daniel's communicating all this. Adam wasn't just essentially human. He was representatively human in the sense that as Adam goes, what? So goes all the rest of the human race. When Adam sinned, when, I, when he broke God's law by, by eating the fruit of the forbidden tree, well, what happened? Well, he died, not immediately, but eventually, the one who was created from dust, he, he returned to dust just as God promised, and ever since Adam, death has been our collective universal fate. Why? Why is that? Well, because when Adam sinned, it was as if we all sinned because he was our representative, our, our ambassador. I mean, think about this. If, if President Obama sends Max Bacchus, that, that's our ambassador to China, to Beijing, and, and he insults Xi Jinping, that's the president of China, right? If, if he insults that man, it's as if we all insulted the Chinese president. Why? Well, because Max Bacchus is acting on our behalf, okay? So in the providence of God, Adam functions the same way in God's kingdom. Same way. Romans 5, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all senders, Paul says in verse 15, many died through one man's trespass. So let's put these pieces together, okay? When Daniel says that the figure in his vision is one like a son of man, he's telling his fellow exiles, he's telling them that this one that he sees is essentially human, and he's suggesting in no uncertain terms that he's also representatively human, okay? But don't overlook the fact that Daniel is very careful to speak of this one he sees as one like a son of man. What does that mean? Well, though he's essentially human and representatively human, he's not merely human. He's not. Similarity and difference exist side by side, okay? So, so the big point here is that coming with the clouds of heaven and appearing like a son of man is Daniel's way of wedding unmistakable deity to undeniable humanity. He's bringing them together. Now look at what happens next. This is amazing. The one like a son of man, he comes to the ancient of days to God and is presented before him. Okay, now that's remarkable. Why is that remarkable, Matthew? I read that all the time. Well, well not exactly. All right, because in the Bible, 
God is the one, God is always the one who takes initiative to reveal his presence to his people or bring his people into his presence. You know what happens to people who have the audacity and the arrogance to try to bring themselves into the presence of God? They don't make it. They die. They die. He's holy. We're not. As God told Moses in Exodus 33, man shall not see my face and live. Yet, this one, like a son of man, <laughs> this is amazing, is sufficiently worthy to not only come to Yahweh on his own initiative, but also be presented before him by the entire rest of the heavenly court. What should that tell you? This son of man is doing what no human being has ever been able to do since the fall of Adam. We can't do that. You can't bring yourself to God. But he does. Now look at verse 14. And to him was given, it's one like a son of man, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. What does that tell us? That's a familiar drum I'm trying to beat here, okay? Here again, we've got humanity and divinity. Where do we have humanity? Well, he's receiving the dominion that God gave Adam and Adam lost in the fall. So what's this one like a son of man doing? He's doing what Adam was supposed to do and failed to do. Okay, you, you can think of him as, as the man par excellence. Okay, he's, he's ruling over the beast instead of being ruled by them. I mean, what happened in the Garden of Eden? The opposite, right? Who ruled over Adam? A beast, a serpent, Satan. What is this one like a son of man doing? He's ruling over the beast. He's not ruled by them. He, he's doing what Adam failed to do. He's exercising the dominion that Adam was supposed to exercise. So, so there's a humanity here, but, but there's also a, a divinity. Where, where do we see this? Well, he's receiving the kind of universal worship that belongs to God alone. Okay, when, when Daniel says, all people, nations, and languages should serve him, we've heard that before. Nebuchadnezzar, in chapter three, commanded what? that all people, nations, and languages, exact same words in Aramaic, should serve and worship his gods and his statue. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego use the same serve word when they say back to Nebuchadnezzar, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. In other words, when, when Daniel says that all people, nations, and languages should serve this one like a son of man. He's not talking about taking his drink order. <laughs> Waiting on his table. It's religious worship. That serve is speaking of the core allegiance and loyalty of the human heart. What you love. What all peoples, nations, and languages what we cherish, what, what we are looking to and living for as the one thing we must have to satisfy the soul. That, Daniel says, 
he saw all going to the Son of Man. So who are all these peoples, nations, and languages going to serve one like a Son of Man? One like a Son of Man. Well, well, why? Because his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's the kind of universal, eternal dominion and rule that God promised all throughout the Old Testament to give a king from the line of David. 2 Samuel 7 or Psalm 110, Psalm 2, I love this, Psalm 2-7, the Lord said to me, the Davidic king, you are my son. Today I have begotten you, ask of me, I'll make the nations your heritage and the end of the earth, your possession. Okay, now whether Daniel knew anything more about the identity of this, this one like a son of man who is both human and divine, whom he saw exercising God-given dominion over the whole world on the day of judgment, we don't know. It's all we get. But I'll tell you what we do know. Nearly 600 years later, a Jewish high priest named Caiaphas challenged a prisoner he had just arrested in the middle of the night with these words. Are you the Christ? The son of the blessed. And Jesus said, I am. I am Caiaphas. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven, Caiaphas. That was a mic drop moment. (laughs) That was Caiaphas, I call your bluff and I raise you more than you can pay. Friends, only Jesus, only Jesus, fully God and fully man, perfectly combines the divinity and the humanity that we see in Daniel 7. Only Jesus, of the same substance of the Father, is is worthy of sitting next to him in the courtroom of heaven. Did you notice in verse 9 that thrones were placed? Why do we need more than one? Because it's not just the Ancient of Days sitting on a throne. Only Jesus is able to bring the kingdom of God to pass on the earth, replacing the beastly kingdoms of this world with the eternal kingdom of the living God. Revelation 5. Who is worthy to open the scroll and and break its seals, to, to fulfill God's plan for history? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, looking as if it had been slain. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And they sang a new song, saying, 
Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you what? You ransomed people for God from where? Listen, every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Friends, you realize, do you realize that in the end, Jesus wins? He wins, okay? He wins. That's, that's where this entire world is going. That, that's where human history is headed. Every joy, every sorrow, every victory, every, every defeat, every I mean, honestly, every leaf that falls, every wave that crashes, every, every day that dawns, right now, you know, every, every year that passes, it's, it's, all, it's all going somewhere. There is a reason for your existence. There, there's a point to your life. You, you might not feel it on Monday morning, but friend, it's true. It's true when you're weeping. It's, it's true when you're laughing. All, all that we are and all that we have, it's, it's moving toward the day when the kingdom that Jesus inaugurated through his resurrection is gonna be consummated at his return. It's where it's, where it's all going. And your life is, is bound up in that current. You can't get out of that current even if you wanted to. Okay, the ancient of days is going to be glorified in the universal dominion of the one like a son of man. And all people, nations, and languages are going to serve him, and you can't stop that. And the evil kingdoms and oppressive people in your life, they can't stop that train either. They can't stop it. They can't stop it. Jesus is going to win. So what difference does that make? I want to bring one very practical application here, okay? Knowing Jesus is going to win should make us, if you're a Christian, incredibly bold and persistent in helping other people follow him. Okay? Knowing Jesus is going to win, it better make us incredibly bold and persistent and helping people follow him. Why do I say that? Well, because making disciples is ridiculously hard work. It's hard to teach a child to submit to authority. Oh my, it's hard. It's hard to help a friend fight for sexual purity. It's, it's hard. It's just downright hard to be a faithful church member for 25 years. It is downright hard to be a faithful pastor for 25 years. So, so, why are we doing it? I mean, why, why don't we lose heart when all we see around us is failure, when, when you can't perceive any fruit from all your words and notes and prayers? What's going to keep you from throwing in the towel? I mean, it, 
I see it happen all the time. In, in marriages and churches and personal relationships. Well, hear this, church. Hear this. You keep going because every word you speak, every note you write, every prayer you pray in the name of urging someone you love to follow Jesus is an act of devotion to the supreme goal of the entire universe. The glory of God and the redemptive rule of Christ. And listen, you keep on speaking, you keep on writing, you keep on praying, not because you see progress, but because you see a savior who is infinitely worthy of that person's worship. That's what you do. It's the worth of Christ whose dominion is an everlasting dominion and whose, whose kingdom should not be destroyed, that, that sustains our boldness and, and compels our perseverance in the fight to make disciples. It is not the attitude and response of the person we're trying to help. It's the worth of Christ that compels those things, sustains those things. Jesus is gonna be worshiped by every people and nation and tribe and tongue. And church, we need to remember that. No matter how hard it gets for you and me to make disciples. Point one. The triumph of God's kingdom is secured through the triumph of God's son. Point two, or four if you're counting. This will be a bit shorter. If you're in Christ, his victory is your victory. This is just crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, why do we ever get anxious? It's humbling. If you're in Christ, his victory is your victory. I, I've used this illustration before, but I think this is so helpful, okay? My oldest son is ridiculously excited to watch the Eagles play the Redskins at one o'clock today. All right? It's called the birds. We're watching the birds. And um, so is daddy. So is daddy. And and you need to know that I'm very much hoping that at four o'clock when some of my friends text me that I will be able to text back two words. We won. Now just shush your thoughts because I know the Eagles haven't won in a very long time. <laughs> but I'm still hoping I'm going to be able to text those words. We won. Now why do I say that? Why would I dare say we won? All I did was sit on the couch. The only block I threw was blocking my two-year-old from taking my drink. I, 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 didn't, I didn't pass for 15 yards. I didn't run for a first down. And yet when my friend says, how's it going? I text back, Lord willing, we won. Why we? Well, because they're my team. Right? I mean, this isn't rocket science. They're my team. And I so identify myself with them that if they win, I win. And if they lose, I lose. I mean, true confession on the Sundays when the Eagles lose, there's a discernible drop in joy in the Williams household <laughs> among the boys, dad, seven, five, and two, well, not two, but the others, that night, okay? It's true, there's a discernible drop in joy if we don't win. Now, what does that illustrate? Well, friend, if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, then when Jesus wins, you win too. 
except, please hear this, it's not a figment of your imagination like me texting, we won after an Eagles game, okay? It's reality. It's reality. If he wins, you win. Why? Because of something called the precious doctrine of the union of the saints with Christ. Union with Christ. That, that is an infinitely precious doctrine. And I want you to see something really important here in the second part of Daniel 7. Really important, okay? Look at verse 14. Verse 14, and to who? To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Okay, now, look at verse 18. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Okay, come again, Daniel? Which one is it? Does Jesus receive dominion or do we receive dominion? Well, well church, the answer is both. It's both, okay? You, you can't escape the conclusion that in verses 13 to 14, you've got a unique individual who is both human and divine inheriting the kingdom of God and ruling over it for all eternity. You can't escape that. And at the same time, you can't ignore the fact that in verses 18 and again in 27, it's the saints or the people of the Most High who receive the kingdom of God and rule over it for all eternity. So, so remember, remember last week when I said that this symbol of a beast or a horn, this can represent both a king and a kingdom. Well, why is that the case? Well, well because kings and kingdoms are both distinct and inseparable in Daniel's vision. The reason, this is not rocket science, okay, is, it, is that it's not a contradiction to say that the king represents his people. No less than an ambassador represents the country. So as the king goes, so goes his people, which is precisely what the entire Old Testament teaches us from the history of Israel. If Israel had a good king, what happened next in the rest of the verses? It went well for the people. If Israel had an evil king, what happened in the rest of the verses? It went badly for the people. Okay, as the king goes, so the people go. And God promised King David in 2 Samuel 7 that he was going to give him a king from his line that in that king, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So, listen very carefully. I would argue that the best way to reconcile Daniel 7.14, where the one like a son of man receives an eternal kingdom, with Daniel 7.27, where the people of the saints of the Most High, you and me, Christian, receive the kingdom, is to conclude three things. One, the kingdoms are identical. Two, the people possess what the Son of Man first receives. And the one like a son of man is both distinct from and identified with the people of the saints of the Most High through their union with him. Why? That was a lot of words, Matthew. Why is that not surprising? Why should you not be sitting there thinking, say what? Because that's precisely the kind of intimate spiritual relationship that the entire Old Testament anticipates when it speaks of the servant of the Lord who would be our substitute, our representative, dying in our place for our sins that we might be reconciled to God. 
union with Christ, okay? In the, in the same way that, that Adam functioned as our representative and God chose to look on his actions as our actions, so now, friend, if you are united to Christ through faith and repentance, God looks on Christ's actions as your actions, representatives, unless there be any objection that that's somehow not fair or right, you had better be quiet before you say that because it is incredibly good news that we have hope to be united with Christ. So listen to Paul. Remember, you should always be asking, how do I know that's true? Romans 5. The free gift, oh, it's not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For if the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if by one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. They're similar, but union with Christ is infinitely better. Infinitely better. Now, now, here is where it gets really practical. Here's the critical question. Is this reigning in life Paul speaks of Christians enjoying because they've been united to Christ through faith in Christ. Is this reigning in life a reigning that we should expect to experience in this life? Or when the Lord returns and makes all things new? When you think about that, well, Scripture teaches both. But friend, the focus in Daniel 7 is on the future. Don't miss that. It's on the eternal reign. We'll share with Jesus when he returns. So, so there's a beautiful sense in which we already reign spiritually with Christ in this life. Why? Well, because we presently enjoy, if you're a Christian, freedom from the guilt of sin, freedom from the power of sin. But there's a, another sense in which we're not going to experience what it means to reign physically with Christ until he returns. So the entire exhortation of Daniel 7 is to not lose sight of his physical reign that is yet to come. Don't lose sight of that. Why? Why do I say that? Why do I say that? Well, brothers and sisters, I say that because if you lose sight of the future joy of life in the new heavens and new earth, if you lose sight of that, then you're going to lose heart in the present sorrow of life in a fallen world. If you lose sight of your future joy, you're going to lose heart in your present sorrow. Every time. Every time. So here's our temptation. It's just like the exiles in Babylon. We want our best life now. Oh, like a two-year-old. Oh, we don't do that with our arms, but we do that in our hearts. Want it now. We, we, we don't say it aloud, but, but I bet every one of us in this room would want a nice job, a nice house, easy friends, a comfortable church, a little more money, less stress, perfect health, a sweet car, and, and everything else that we define as part of the good life. I won't 
make you embarrass yourself and raise your hand, but know that I'm raising mine right now. Okay? So, so is it bad to want those things? Is it bad that I want Doug Bear's body to be whole? I don't think it is. It's not wrong to desire the gifts and blessings of this world. It's, it's not wrong. So, so where do we get in trouble? Well, two ways. Two ways. We get in trouble if we exalt the gifts above the giver, separating the kingdom from the king. And we get in trouble if we expect and demand God to deliver in the present what he has only promised to give us in the future. That's how we get in trouble. Be careful, friend. Be very careful. God has not promised to give you your best life yet. You know what he tells you? The best is yet to come. It's yet to come, okay? So, so Matthew, what is it going to be like to reign with Christ, you said? It just sounds so abstract. Well, friend, this is what it's going to mean. It's going to mean enjoying, get, get this, it's going to mean enjoying all the gifts and blessings of the world God created without the slightest trace of sin inside of you or around you. I, I don't have a category for that. I mean, it's like returning to Eden, only better. Why do I say better? Well, because this time we're going to possess the kingdom what? Forever, forever, and ever. Literally translated or read, it reads like this. To the forever and to the forever of forevers. <laughs> it's like Daniel's just on repeat. Forever and ever, forever of evers. Well, why? Why, would that, why say that about paradise? Well, because unlike Eden, we're not going to be able to lose dominion anymore. Why? Because Jesus Christ is not about to lose his dominion. And through faith, we're bound in him. Christian, the Lord is preparing a kingdom for you right now. And he's been preparing it from the foundation of the world. Matthew 25, my exhortation to you, be content to wait for it. Be content to wait. God, help us be content to wait. We pray for taste of it. We thank God when we get a bite. But don't you dare doubt his goodness. If in response to your prayer, as a faithful father, he puts his hand on you and says, son, I want you to wait. I know best. Remember, church, that he's already given you a guarantee of your inheritance while you're waiting. It's called the Holy Spirit. It's a guarantee of your future inheritance in the kingdom of God. And the Holy Spirit helps us wait by fixing our eyes on his word. The triumph of God's kingdom is secured through the triumph of God's Son. And if you're in Christ, his victory is your victory.
I want you to close your eyes and listen to these words as we prepare to sing. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride. Adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face. Moses could never say. And his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Church, Kingsway, in the end, Jesus wins. He wins. And if you, through faith in Christ right now, friend, confess your sin and trust him to save you, then on that day, oh friend, you're going to win too.